0: Well, I hope you have started the new year well, and that it's off to a good start, and and maybe you even have some New Year's resolutions out there that you've already broken, made and broken, I don't know. How many of y'all have made New Year's resolutions? Raise your hand. All right. How many of y'all have already broken your New Year's resolution? Raise your hand. Nobody wants to admit it or somebody, you know, it's one of those things that it happens and then it's over and then it's like, oh man, I made that commitment and then, well anyway, you're at this time of the year when you're making these commitments and you're thinking it through and, and how's it, how is your life going to be different in, in the new year? And you know, I think it's a healthy process to go through where you think about where you've been, where you're coming from, where you're going, where you're, where, you're, where you're not heading, where you don't want to go. Many times it comes with pluses or minus signs next to it. I want to add more uh, reading into my life. I want to add more vegetables into my life. I want to subtract less of the bad stuff. I want to exercise more. I want to, you know, it's the pluses and the minuses. Sometimes, though, we need to create a whole new category. Maybe the category's not even there. The bucket is not even there. And I don't know if it's, again, Adam's subtraction or, or, or divide and conquer or whatever it may be in our lives. And the new year just kind of gives us that new calendar, new opportunity to think it through. But this could happen at any time. When you can stop for a moment, look at your life, look at your world, and think, okay, is this the path I want to stay on for the rest of my life? If I were to stay on this path for the rest of my life, would I be happy at the ending of my life? Just think about that for a moment. Where you're at, where you're going, where you're headed, Uh, is it where you want to be? There's two words that kind of come to my mind as I turn the calendar this year that really, I think, sum up a lot of how I feel about going into the new year, about making New Year's resolutions. The first word is, is clarify, is I need to clarify some things in my life. You need to clarify some things in your life. Before you start adding and subtracting, I would encourage you to clarify clarify some big ticket items some big bucket items create buckets if you will in your life where you're thinking okay this is bucket number 1 and this is number 1 in my life and this is bucket number 3 and bucket number 3 shouldn't be bucket number 1 it should only be bucket number 3 and then whatever goes in that bucket make that in its proper category and prioritization in your life clarifying is is important no matter, before you start the subtraction and addition process, you might take the wrong thing out when you actually should leave the right, that in. That, that is one of the key things. It's like one of the Latin American proverbs that I, that I came across this week. If you don't know where you are coming from, and if you don't know where you're going, then any bus will do. Think about it. I mean, if you don't know, I have a direction, and you don't know where you're coming from, then yeah, just get on any bus. I don't think any of us wants to live a life where you just get on any bus. Hopefully, you're getting on the bus that really is going to the place you want to end up in your life. You will only be able to do that if you do the time, you do the diligence, and you clarify. Clarify, clarify where you're at. Clarify where you're going. Then, number two, simplify. These are just my words. You come up with your own words. But this is what came to me at the first of the year. I need to simplify. If something is in my life, that it ought not be there, it's not a part of the big clarification moment of my life, then maybe I need to get rid of that. And it's amazing the number of things that we pick up and we gather and we collect along the way through life. Life becomes quite cluttered at times. I don't know about you. Convoluted, confused, crowded. I don't know what kind of word you would put to describe your world, your life, but if you don't go through this process of clarifying and then simplifying, getting rid of, adding to, whatever that needs to be, then, then you may miss it. You may miss the most important, again, bucket, if you will. So in 2013, if you're looking at buckets again, if I can overuse that word, if you're looking at your life and your, your priorities, I hope that one of the buckets that you will clarify is, is a very simple question, but maybe a more difficult answer could come from this. And that is, who is your God? I mean, I, let's, let's not assume anything here today. Let's, let's take a moment and let's ask a very important question. Who are you following? Who are you worshiping? Who are you giving allegiance to? Who are you bowing to? Who are you spending your devotion to? What, where are you living out your life? Who is your God? And I would just add to that, I would choose my God very wisely because you're going to spend eternity with that God in some form or fashion. So make sure the God that you do choose is the right God, is the sure God, is the true God, is the almighty God. And hopefully you know that God, and hopefully you are in pursuit of knowing that God. Now, we're starting a study today that will take us 11 weeks. There will be one week in there that we'll kind of veer off course But in 11 weeks, we're going to be studying 10 key moves. These 10 key moves are not new with me. They have been around since the 13th or 14th century BC. They've been around a long time. They're tried, they're proven, they're good. They've lasted, they'll shape a nation, they'll make a difference in your life and in my life. They'll save your marriage, they'll save your career, they'll make the difference in your career. That's how important these ten moves are. But more than a career, more than a marriage, it'll make a difference in who you are. Getting these ten moves down. Now, again, they're not original with me. The ten moves, they'll kind of come in a cadence. They'll come in a sequence. They're not random. They have a very clear formula to them. One leads to two. Two builds, builds up to three. And three goes to four. It makes perfect sense when you look at them in their totality. Now, these ten key moves might not be the most appealing if I call them the Ten Commandments. But that's what we're talking about. We're going to launch into a study and looking at some tried and true, proven throughout time and history, throughout nations, throughout peoples, throughout educated and uneducated, that these ten key elements, if they're not in your life, your life could become a dumpster fire. Your life could become a train wreck. And it might be, if you go back far enough and you look deep enough and long enough, you might find that maybe the issue was, is you missed in one of these ten key fundamental moves in your life. Now, the problem is, is that we might, we might think we know about the ten key moves, we might know about the ten commandments, but in reality, most people don't. Newsweek did a study a few years ago, or at least published a study a few years ago, that found that only 49% of Protestants and 44% of Roman Catholics were able to name four of the Ten Commandments. Four of the Ten Commandments. So here, i got some homework for you this week. You might guess where I'm going with this. I don't want you to cheat. It's not an open book test, all right? You need to do this from rote memory. All right? You're not going to be graded. You're not going to share this with me. You can share it with your loved ones, or you cannot. You can keep it to yourself. But I want you to see how well you are at naming, in order, God's Ten Commandments. How well? Because if these are so fundamental, and they're so important, but yet the church-going population can name four of the ten, then we've got a problem. We've got a problem if these are fundamental that we don't have the fundamentals down. We don't even have the key moves down. Now, before you kind of draw in that presupposition that I have when I think about commandments, because it's not the sexiest word on the planet, all right? It's not one of those, oh, somebody's going to tell me what I have to do. Somebody's going to command me in what I have to do. No, no, no. That, That's not fun at all. We like our freedom in America, all right? We like our our, our ability, our autonomy to make our own choices. But these commands, these directives, these ten fundamental moves, again, can save your hide, can preserve a whole lot of pain, can detour you onto a better path than the path that you're on right now. So think about it like this, that God is standing in the road of your life, and He's saying these key ten elements need to be a part of your life. And I don't base that just on my presuppositions. I base that on the Word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 32 says, Take to heart, listen to this, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today. Now notice this, parents, that you may command them to your children. If you don't know the Ten Commandments, do you think your children are going to know the Ten Commandments? If you don't teach them, do you think they'll ever pick them up? It won't happen by osmosis. You can clearly see by our, our judicial system, we don't want them in our schools anymore. We don't want them on our courthouses anymore. We don't want them anywhere around in public anymore for fear, oh my God, that we might be influenced not to kill people. Think about the, 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 the ludicracy of that. I mean, think about the moral values that are in, woven to the fabric. Of it, of these ten directives. And so just chew on that for a moment. But he tells us as parents, that's our job. That they may be careful to do all the words of the law. For it is not empty word for you, but your very life. God's directives, God's commandments, these ten key moves are life. But they're not only life, I will also say it's liberty to you. Again, we have this kind of feeling that commandments are telling us what to do, shackling us down, robbing us of the joy of life. It's not the truth. The truth is, in 1 John 5, 3, it tells us that His words, His commandments, are not burdensome. They're not a burden. They're actually freeing, liberating. You actually get on the right path. You actually live the right kind of life. I want us to kind of think through this series as these ten key moves as being kind of almost God's directional waypoints in our life. If you think about mapping, charting out your life and these God's commands as directional waypoints, that they're going to be out there for us to kind of steer us along the way. Listen, life happens, doesn't it? You're on one road one day, on one path one day, in one relationship one day, on one career one day, at one company one day, and all of a sudden, in a matter, in a blink of an eye, and I'm going to share a story with you in a few moments, how you can be on a totally different path in a heartbeat. And some of those different paths can literally leave your head spinning, lost, directionless. You see so many people careen off the road of life making horrible decisions because they don't have waypoints, directions, that that when life is a little shaky, that when life gets a little fuzzy, that they don't have something to look back and pinpoint in their life. This is a key fundamental value of my life. Hell or high water, this is something I can count on and bank on as it's going to be true in my life. And that's what I'm suggesting to you today. However you express it, however you live your life, wherever you live your life, whoever you live it with, that you will have these key fundamental things nailed down clearly in your life. Deuteronomy 30 again says, I set before you today life and prosperity. We like that, don't we? Death and destruction is also there. For I command you today to love of the Lord your God and to walk in his ways and to keep his commands and decrees of the law. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land. There's not a person in this room that doesn't want God to bless them, God to give them his riches. But are we willing to walk in his path? Are we willing to follow him as our guide? Now, if you want to break down the Ten Commandments, you can break them down into two major categories, if you will. The first four commandments kind of deal with how we relate to God, the kind of the vertical relationship with God. And that is the most important one. I'll just uh, hands down make no apologies about it. It's not the first thing we think of when we think about important relevant elements in our life, but I'll tell you this, if you don't get the first four down, the rest, the final six, the the 5 to 10 that deal with how we relate to each other, it'll only be by a crapshoot if you get it right. Because in reality We've got to have the vertical before the horizontal will ever work out. The, the last six deal with how we relate to each other, how I relate to my spouse, how I relate to your spouse, how I relate to you as a friend, how I deal with you, how I do business with you, how we communicate together, how we commune together. All of that works on that horizontal plane, but the vertical has to be in place. Don't skip past the first to go to the last and miss what God is wanting to say and do in your life. Now, the Egyptians, you've got to realize this, as we look at this, the Egyptians uh, were, um, were kind of the ruling nation, if you will, in, in, in the modern world when Israel was, was held captive for 400 years, by the way. 400 years being held captive under this, this Pharaoh rule and this this godlike rule because the Pharaohs really saw themselves as God's. So as they were, they were under this kind of rule, they, um, they, they kind of lived in a system where the pharaohs, literally, we got our, the pyramids of Egypt from this belief that as a pharaoh died, he would be buried in this pyramid, and uh, he would be buried sometimes with his children, with his family, they'd be killed so that they would also go into the afterlife with him, and he would also be buried with his wealth, because his wealth was going to go with him. They believed that they would be as rich and as much as a ruler in the second life if they went prepared as they were in the first life. So they lived in this kind of of belief system out there that they were gods. And now all of a sudden, 400 years of this, year after year after year of the Egyptians being up here and the Hebrews being down here as their slaves, the, the Hebrews now are set free. They're able to go. And they're in between the promised land. They're not in the promised land yet. They haven't seen the land flowing with milk and honey. That's only promised. It's not delivered, okay? It's a promise. It's a hope. It's a dream. They're receiving it in faith, but it's not there. And where they are in the middle is between Egyptian captivity and the promised land. And all they know is that all these gods of the Egyptians. And then all of a sudden God kind of speaks up and he says this. There's only one God. There's only one God. One supreme, one solitary, one sovereign, God of all, God of all the universe. There's not this pantheon of gods. You need to know who this God is. Take your Bibles, find the book of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 is where we'll uh, look at for the next weeks and months, so these pages hopefully will be a little bit worn in your Bibles, and I want us to follow along as I begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 20. And the God spoke to all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here's the first command, you shall have no other God before me. I am supreme. I am exclusive. I'll not share my fame, my glory, my throne with anybody else. Now, the problem in our day of pluralism and relativism, we don't like that kind of exclusive God. We like the all-inclusive God. But you've got to realize we don't make up the rules. God makes up the rules. Now, it was funny. 22 years ago when I got married to Lori, she had this funny, lame-brain idea that I would be exclusively hers. Can you believe that? What a crazy idea. Of course I wanted the same of her. But we have no problem with exclusivity in a marriage. We have no problem with exclusivity on a sports team or we have loyalty to your team, to your company. But somehow when God wants to be the only God of your life, we have a problem with that. See, we like to call our own shots, we like to bow down to our own things, materialism, stuff, dreams, positions, power prestige, resumes, whatever it is, we kind of create this own God out there in this world. And we'll talk more about that next week. But I want us to just establish number one thing that God puts out there on the table. And He doesn't leave any room for for ambiguity. Is that there is one God and I am that God. Am I going to be your God or am I not? Puts it out there. Now, again, we don't necessarily like that kind of God. We like the grandfather God. You know the grandfather? Maybe you had one like mine who had always had money and candy in his pocket, gum in his pocket, never could say no, never spanked you, never grounded you, was always the the loving yes man, all right? And that's the kind of grandfather God that we like to have. Now, what I call that is one of the four expressions of common views of God out there is the mush God, All right? Now this mush god if you will is nameless genderless convictionless god he she or it can be invited and is a great guest at any ribbon cutting ceremony of any new business that opens in town at some invocation by somebody who might say a prayer throw up to a god and that's about it but pretty much other than that he has no convictions he's kind of mush he's kind of milk toast this is the way one writer put it the mush god has no theology to speak of being a cream of wheat divinity, the mush god has no particular credo, no tenets of the faith, nothing that would make it difficult for a believer or an unbeliever to alike. you can even invoke him to start a hooker convention, and he she or it won't be offended now i didn't write it, I just read it okay but I think that idea of this kind of soft, weak need, milk toast kind of God is a real popular view of God today. Beware. That's not the God of the universe. Number two is the mean God. I, I, as much as I don't like the mush God, I don't like the mean God. The mean God is the, is the, the polar opposite. It's the strong-fisted, mean, scar on his face, never smiles God, never lets you enjoy life God. That's the kind of the image that some Christians or some followers like to put out there about God. In fact, I saw a bumper sticker on a car one day, and I wanted to do vandalism to the car, but I didn't. It just said, Beware of God. Now, maybe the person who was driving that car and said that, you know, maybe they had good motives, but I tell you, my first thought was that I needed to run and hide because God's about to zap me. And that's not the image, that's not the biblical view of God. And we'll see a true, balanced picture of God in a moment. But also, let me tell you about the meaningless God. There's a meaningless God out there. That's the kind of the mesh between the two, the, the, the mush God and the mean God. It's a cross between the two. Now, some in this room may actually believe in the meaningless God. Because they'll come on Sunday and they'll throw a few bucks in the plate when it comes by and they'll throw up a Hail Mary or a Lord's Prayer every now and then. But but really, day-to-day, week-to-week, jobs, all that kind of stuff, that's mine, God. I've got that figured out. I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to consult you. That's kind of like the toy God. You bring him down when you need some help and you put him back on the shelf when you don't need him anymore. That's a meaningless God. I want to introduce you to, if you don't know him already, because he's very clear and the people of Israel very well knew him experientially, I want to introduce you to the majestic, merciful, all-powerful, mighty God. And that's the God, that's the God of this book that I hold in my hand. That's the God that I am in a lifetime pursuit of wanting to know and wanting to be like and wanting to experience and wanting to please and wanting His blessings on me. That's the God I, I want to know. Again, let's go back to the history of the text that we're looking at, though we're not reading very much from there because it makes it very clear. No other gods before me. I'm the one and only God. Don't need much definition to that. But who is this God? See, these commands that came down from God, they have a history. There's a context to them. Any time, you've got to understand the context behind it. So the context is is that these people, remember, have been captive for 400 years, generation after generation. And now they're in a situation where they are on the edge of freedom and promise and opportunity. And the God of the universe has delivered them. And the beauty of that is, is that we get to know God in a very powerful way when we walk with Him as the people of Hebrew model for us, the Hebrew people model for us. I want to give you, just based on the people of Israel, three reasons why you need to stop. Stop wondering. Stop looking. And start chasing after the one and only true God. Stop making God in your own image. Stop dumbing Him down. Stop making Him a mean, evil God. And understand Him in the light of what we see here in Scripture. One, I want you to see Him as our merciful Savior. You've got to go back again and remember that the people of Israel being in captivity 400 years, how many times are I going to say that? But realize that they had lived with this evil tyrant Pharaohs one after another beating them down. And so in chapter 2 of Exodus, you find this statement being, uh, being prayed out to God and God responding. The people of Israel groaned. Because of their slavery, they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard the groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I want you to just see those words. Israel groaned. They cried out for help. What was God's response? Was He the mean God, the mush God who really didn't have the backbone to do anything? No, He was the merciful Savior God. God heard their groaning. God remembered the covenant. God made a covenant with all the people of the world that would follow Him. And so here's the beauty. No matter where you are in your life and you will have hell moments, you will have hell seasons. may look at your life and say, my life's been hell. I want to tell you right now that there is a merciful Savior God who if you cry out to Him, He will hear you. He will respond to you. There is no darkness, no depth, no despair that you can be that He cannot hear and and respond. One of the greatest passages I I can't do it justice is in Ephesians chapter 2. Whenever He's describing in Ephesians 2, Paul is the condition of mankind. He says they were dead. Now dead pretty much is about as low as you can get. About six feet under. Okay? Non-responsive, lifeless. You were dead. I want everyone to say this. I was dead. I was dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God... Being rich in mercy. The same response that He gave to the people of Israel. He's giving to the dead in trespasses and sins, you and me. And the same response was, it was His mercy that came alive. His mercy brought life to us. It was His mercy that did this. He loved us. He made us alive. He raised us up. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. The beauty of a relationship with the God of the universe and having one God, not 15 gods, one God along with other gods, is having one God, is that when you know that one God, and He is your one God, He is merciful. He will walk with you. He will sort life out with you. When He says, thou shalt not, He's just saying, don't hurt yourself. When He says, thou shalt, He's saying, go bless yourself. Go be blessed. God is a merciful, loving, compassionate God. And hey, listen to this. If you think for a moment that your life, you think, Mike, you don't understand what I'm facing tomorrow. Let me give you some good news in probably the most obscure place. Your pages of your Bible probably will still be stuck together. In the book of Lamentations, one of the greatest verses out there, His mercies never cease great is His faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. What that tells me is this. That when God is my God and there's no other God, He is the single focus of my life. Then there's nothing that this world is going to dish into my life that His mercies will not be sufficient for that day. It will not be enough. I, whatever I'm going through. Now, I'll tell you this. The other side of the coin is, is if you're your own God, you get to make up your own mercies. Yeah, you get to make up your own rules, but you also get to figure life out on your own. So my challenge to all of us today, my plea to you and to, to everyone, is this. Make God center, focus, only one in your life. making Him your all-out pursuit. He is is a merciful Savior. He will walk with you through whatever you're facing. Number two, He's a mighty conqueror. Now, we just read a verse there a few moments ago. In verse two, it said, the Lord brought you out. The Lord brought you out. Now, that's a pretty key statement there. Because you've got to remember... The people had only been released after ten plagues had been dealt to the Egyptian people. Only after breaking the back of Pharaoh did they finally say, okay, we're going to let you go. He lets the people go. Now, no more than they get out of town and get into the sandy quag of, uh, of the desert, crossing through the wilderness, does Pharaoh come to his senses and he's like, listen, our standard of living just walked off. Our slaves, our house help, our gardeners, our ranchers, our dung cleaner uppers, or whatever it is that they had them do, they just left. And now we have to do all that. So, what he does, he rallies, and you can read this in in Exodus 14. He rallies 600 of his elite troops, Pharaoh does, and he sends them chasing after to bring them back. So, can you imagine? Now, I don't know how the word got to the Israelites faster than the the elite soldiers, but it got to them. And now they're in a situation where there is a humongous pond of water called the Red Sea in front of them. And there are approaching hoofbeats right behind them of 600 elite soldiers from Pharaoh's army. They are between a rock and a hard place, they are in a very tough situation. But just to, for the sake of time to make it short, what God does is you might know the story if you watch the movie or any other, other stuff, uh, is God parts the water. They walk through on dry ground. They get through on the other side. Pharaoh's army comes through in their little chariots. And all of a sudden, the waters collapse in on these 600 elite soldiers, and they're gone. Now, that's the short, quick story just to say this. How did that happen? How did that happen? If you understand that our God is a mighty conqueror and that there's nothing in this world that He can't do, He can part waters, He can drown soldiers, He can do it all, and He can do it in the blink of an eye, and that's the God that you and I should be bowing our life to, then let's man up and let's do that. God wants to do so much in and through our lives, but the problem is is that we somehow don't let Him be God. But for some of you all today, I want, to, I want you to ask yourself the question. What has God brought me through this year? What has He done in my life? Think back the past 12 months. Think of, maybe it's a big thing. Maybe it's not a big thing. Maybe it was a toxic relationship that you got out of. A matter of prayer and renewing your relationship with God and, and you just knew it wasn't the right thing. It was an unhealthy relationship. Maybe it was out of an addiction. You found freedom maybe it was a sickness that you found healing and maybe it wasn't a healing that you received maybe it was that god just saw you through it and maybe you're still wrestling with it on this side maybe it's losing someone you loved but god carried you through it let me tell you the best book i've read this past year and i read a lot of books The best book I've read this past year was a book called A Grace Disguised. I actually was reading a book, and it was a footnote to the book. It was a great book. And so when you read great books, you read the footnotes to the books. And so I came across this through a footnote. And I started reading it, and he had me in the first two pages. The story is of Jerry himself, whenever he is... um, in Idaho, and he's with his family. His mother Grace is with him, and his, his wife Linda, and their four children are, are traveling, uh, enjoying some vacation time together. And it was late one night, and they rounded a corner uh, in some, some area, and all of a sudden, a drunk driver hits them. And in a matter of seconds, Jerry's life changes completely, completely changes. Three generations die right before his eyes. His mother, Grace, his wife, Linda, and their four-year-old daughter. This book tells the story, the process, the thinking, the years of pain and loss that he went through, that he experienced post that traumatic event in his life. And in what I see through this, and what you will see if you read it, is that you'll see this man in an amazing, powerful way is able to overcome the most God-awful situation that you and I could even imagine. And what you'll find is that his faith in God deepens. And then he becomes a conqueror because God is a conqueror in him. Which brought me to Romans eight thirty seven. When it says, I want you to read it with me. In all these things, read it with me. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. See, if you want to be a conqueror, know the conqueror. The guy who can part the Red Seas and drown the elite soldiers. You want to be a conqueror? Know him who wants to make you a conqueror. Lastly, you see it in the people of Israel. You see it in the Hebrew people is you see a God who's worthy of worship. Majestic for worship. He is amazing. The God, and the story here, if you follow along from the first of Exodus to to chapter 20 where we're studying, is you'll find six of the ten times that, that Moses goes to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. Why? So that they may worship me. God wants worshipers. God deserves worshipers. He deserves first place, foremost in our life. And, and, and you, we, some of us can't get past commandment number one because we won't devote our life fully and completely to Him. Making Him first. Worshiping Him first. We worship silver, self, sex. Position, power, prestige. We worship so many other things. But what, what is truly worthy of worship is the God of the universe and putting Him first and foremost above everything else in our life. I want to give you some challenges before I close today. Think about these challenges with me. If you want to worship God with all your life and all the days of your life, do this. Give God the first day of every week. Just make that commitment. Give God the first part of every day. Give Him 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever. Get your Bible. Get alone. Get in a quiet place. Seek His face. First part of every day. Give Him the first portion of every dollar. He's worthy of it. It ought not be a debate. I don't know you have to preach a sermon on it. Just do it. Give Him the first consideration in every decision. That's a life putting Him first. The life that He calls us to. What God wants from us is a deep-hearted love relationship. Deep love relationship with Him. That's why He sums up the, the first four commandments in one statement Jesus does in the New Testament. In Matthew, He says this. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Everything. Everything within you. Loving Him. Serving Him. Giving to Him. Why? Because He's merciful to you. Because He's a mighty conqueror in your life and wants to make you a mighty conqueror in your world. Because He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy. That's enough. So my challenge this week, my my challenge right now, is to clarify. Clarify who is your God. Be specific. Break it down. Look at your priorities, your life, your ambitions, what you think about all the time. Who's your God? Then simplify My I challenge you. Spend the next year of your life in a hot-hearted pursuit of God. If you don't know Him, get on the track to know Him. He's worthy. He's majestic. He's merciful. And He is mighty. Father God, we bow before you. We ask your richest blessings on this moment. That, Lord, we would know you as the worthy, as the awesome, as the all-powerful God that you are. In Jesus' name.